Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I gotta say, I was having flashbacks to our incredible, we can call it a spring break trip to North Carolina. It was really all-star weekend trip, and you'll remember the huge takeaway was that I annoyed you about hotel points and, you know, sightseeing and all of that. But the real takeaway was we didn't get to see Zion. Right. His shoe exploded. We got the one, you know, terrible injury game of his entire season, probably his entire life, frankly. I think he's had pretty good health. But we, you know, we just had the wrong day. We spun the roulette wheel and it came back against us. We went home broke. (laughs) However, I understand that you were able to attend Zion's, at least his Elite Eight game, maybe a Sweet 16 game too in Washington, D.C. I got to say, I don't regularly, I don't try to make a habit of saying I'm jealous of you, but the jealousy was running very, very deep. I had a nice tournament out in Anaheim. I got to see Jarrett Culver, Gonzaga's kids were really fun, a couple of great games out there, but it Uh wasn't the Zion experience and it wasn't the upset of the year with uh, Michigan State kind of knocking them off in very quintessential Michigan State fashion, just breaking everybody's hearts, just like they've broken my heart for 10 straight years during football season. So long story short, I need a full rundown, a deep painted picture. I want to know everything about the Zion experience in DC, please, and spare no details. Well, I have a lot of thoughts, as you might imagine. Um, I mean, first of all, I think a lot of people have been rooting for Zion all year long, and I, he has the highest approval rating of any athlete in the last like 10 years. It's kind of incredible. I was rooting for Zion. I think, I mean, I, look. You remember being at that Duke game. Everybody in that stadium was so psyched because they were going to get to see Zion in that environment. The environment was cool on its own, but seeing Zion... Including a (laughs) commander-in-chief. Exactly. Including Barack Obama. So the Elite Eight was no different. The Sweet 16 was no different. Both of the Duke games were phenomenal. I couldn't believe how good the Virginia Tech game was. And then Duke-Michigan State delivered in this exact same way. Um, So... I don't know. I think, number one, Zion had one sequence in the second half where he came out going so hard and getting whatever he wanted. He had a three. He had an and one. He got to the line. And it was just like peak Zion. He was a force of nature where all you could do is stand back and shake your head and be like, holy crap, I can't believe this dude is real. And so that element of the experience was great. I have to be 100% honest here, watching it in person in the middle of a sea of 20,000 Duke fans, that was the first time all year that I stopped rooting for Zion because as great as he was, I just can't handle that many happy Duke fans in, in my midst. And so as they, as he, after that run where he scored 10 straight points and took over the game and it looked like Duke was about to pull away and the crowd was kind of going wild, that's where I was like, you know what, I need I need Duke to lose this game. Yeah. I don't care how it happens. I need them to lose. This would be the time I'd kind of pipe in with like some Star Wars analogy about getting pulled over to the dark side, but I've never really gotten into those movies. <laughs> but I, you were probably having like a philosophical moment there where you're like, oh my God, I'm enjoying this too much. All these people around me are about to, you know, you're going to acclimate to their style. You're going to go home and probably no. wear pastel polos and pleated khakis and boat shoes. 100%. 100%. Well, and it's also 
Carolina lost on Friday night, and they were playing the Carolina loss on the big screen before the Duke game began, and the Duke fans were going nuts and talking all this trash about Carolina. So had Carolina been in the Final Four by the time Duke and Michigan State were playing, I may have been able to be the bigger person and root for Zion to succeed and just enjoy the moment. But given Carolina's loss, I just couldn't handle how smug those Duke guys were going to be. And you know what else I should should add here? Cassius Winston, man, he is everything I want out of a point guard. He is basically a living tribute to Ed Coda, who in 1997 was probably the first basketball player I ever truly loved and worshipped. And so his game and watching him just kind of like sneak through the the Duke defense and find guys. He's just so kind of shifty. Um, I loved watching that guy take over the game. And as great as Zion is, we're about to talk about him for probably the next 20 minutes or so, Cassius Winston deserves a lot of love for being like the best possible version of a college player. I swear, if there's guard. a small guard shooting 38%, you just fall head over heels. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. I have a type, man. What it's can I say? so embarrassing. Hey, so here's my question, because like I said, I was at that Texas Tech game, and this kid, Jarrett Culver, you know, his stock is really rising. People are saying, hey, maybe he could be a top five pick. Um, when uh-huh. I was watching his team, like he's surrounded by guys who are like 30 years old. You know, Chris Beard down there, the coach, I mean, he's done a great job, but this guy's pulling in. People tra- love that dude. He's pulling in transfers, I think, from like professional leagues we've never heard of because some of these guys, they seriously look like they're 30 years old. So they're treating Jarrett like the kid brother, and he's obviously the most skilled player on the team in terms of his offensive game. He like, leads them in scoring and rebounding and everything else. Um, but he's like this mild-mannered pastor's son, you know, who's who's just not a very like big personality. So I was wondering, uh-huh. like, his athleticism, which still is not like great by NBA standards, was popping even around all these guys who are like three or four years older than him. I'm wondering, yeah. was that the same experience just magnified seeing Zion in person? Like when he's flying out to the three-point line to like high jump block, you know, some of those three-pointers that uh, Michigan State's putting up <laughs> or like that insane dunk that they ran over, you know, 15 times, I think in the Sweet 16 game, the alley-oop. I mean, paint that the athleticism part for me. Like, is it a man among boys, even though he's like the youngest guy on the court? Um, it is certainly a man among boys. It is also kind of jarring to be around most college basketball players because I was around all four teams at the Sweet 16. And most of these guys look really, really young. I mean, even R.J. Barrett, you can tell looking at him, you're like, wow, okay, so you're 18 years old. Andrew, and Zion, Andrew, though, I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you. That says more about you than it does about them. College <laughs> players have been the same age. That's how it goes. Dude, I know. It's very, very sobering. Um, but as far as Zion is concerned, absolutely. He looks like he is from a different world, and soon that will be true because okay. he will be an NBA player and is going to be really good in the NBA as soon as he gets there yeah so, so that's what i was gonna that say part makes sense compare him to like the wizards guys who you've seen up close and personal this season like athleticism like do you feel like he's coming in as a top 15 athlete top five athlete like where would you put unquestionably him? yeah I, I would say he's probably top 10 top five it's funny i talked to a development coach a couple weeks ago kind of a skills coach and the topic turned to zion at one point and he said look 
Zion is in decent shape now. He's in good shape. He's, his body has improved since he was at high school, but like he's still going to need to lose weight and change some of the weight that he's carrying when he gets to the NBA. And Zion in the NBA is not going to be the same guy that we've been watching for the last couple months here, um, which I agree with. And when you watch him up close, you can see he's still carrying a little bit of extra weight and, and stuff that could kind of be toned down a little bit. Um, but if you're asking me, like, up close and personal, what's the most surprising thing with Zion um, or what kind of caught me off guard or blew my mind or whatever? Oh, I yeah, think, you just like, have this habit where you stand up and clap really loud and go, ooh hoo hoo when, like, crazy things happen. <laughs> so I want to know what Zion did to inspire those kinds of emotions. Oh, man. I do absolutely do that. That's a great impression. And... I will say there was a moment when Duke missed the front end of the one and one at the end of the Virginia Tech game. That was my loudest woo-hoo-hoo because I was really, <laughs> really hyped and rooting for a Duke loss on the same night Carolina lost. Um, as far as Zion, though, everybody knows he dunks. Even the three-point block shots, like I had seen that stuff before. But watching how quick he is on the second jumps and the little putbacks and um, just how explosive he is in those moments where everybody else is getting a rebound, they jump, they, they either get it or they don't. But then when the ball is loose, like Zion can still go right back up 45 inches in the air and get his shot over anybody or get the rebound and... That power is hard to appreciate until you see him amongst guys who are like three and four inches taller than him, very nearly as athletic as he is, and just don't stand a chance in those moments. And so that part was really impressive. So I have a free idea for Clutch Sports or whoever else is going to sign Zion here. And this is actually one of my better ideas. You know how everybody was freaking out about the Zion cam? Like, oh, it's Uh so exploitative. The NCAA is just going to follow Zion around during these games. You know what would actually be even more entertaining than watching Zion play basketball is watching Zion do all the combine activities. Like, I don't know if you read that piece (laughs) in the New York Times about like all these like tall tale Zion stories from various people in his life. It was excellent work by them. They clearly put a lot of reporting time into it, going back to some of his most viral highlight clips and getting the story behind the story. But one of the things that stood out to me was apparently he like broke uh, the vertical leap record at Duke. Like he just, they kept trying to move it up and they were like putting things under the machine to like raise the little sticks even higher. And he just kept swatting all the sticks, no problem. So that's the kind of content that we need. So if it's clutch sports, uninterrupted, whatever, you guys need to have the Zion (laughs) combine run it simultaneous to the Chicago Combine. I promise you, you're going to get more attention than the Chicago Combine. Have him go through all of these different drills. Go ahead and invite NBA scouts if you want to. Um, I don't know, maybe you can get like Akeem Olajuwon or some other, you know, NBA legend to like, you know, pass him the ball or, or, you know, do do these kinds of like, you know, set up drills that makes it look like it's the real thing. But we're really all just gawking at Zion. And then sell the streams. Like, how much would you pay for that, honestly? Would you pay nineteen ninety nine to watch, like, a 90-minute stream of Zion's combine activities? I think I would. Well, um, I don't know if I would. I think it would get a little old pretty quickly. And uh, I should also add that anytime you begin a sentence with, like, I think I have the best idea – I get a little worried, but I would watch it. Look, NBA okay. TV should definitely. What, I don't know if what I'm about four ninety nine? What about four ninety nine? You'd pay five okay. bucks to watch Zion. 
499 stream, we could start to talk. 1999, that's a little steep. I don't love Zion that much. Okay, um, so here's the idea. I'll pay 1999 and then I'll just have like FaceTime on my phone and I'll just put that towards the screen. And so you can bootleg it. Yeah, for, and, and I'll sell it to you for 499. It'll be like a subcontracting agreement. Okay, I can get behind that. Um, I The other thing, hearing you talk about it, the play against Virginia Tech where he was beaten off the dribble and then recovered to block that dude's shot at the rim. I don't know if you saw it, but it was incredible. That's almost it like led- his signature. It's not a chase down, but that's sort of like his signature move, isn't it? Like, hey, it, yeah. you get a half step on me, and then I just wipe you from the face of the earth and also duck out of the way so I don't hit my head on the backboard. It's incredible, man. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, where like his leaping ability is one thing. And it's funny you talk about the Duke vertical test because – I've seen some numbers on what his vertical has been quoted at. It's like mid-40s. But then you watch him play, and you're like, no, no, no. That's got to be low. Like, he's got to be 49, 50, 51. Like, this is just not normal. And um, it's just wild. And by the way, you know, for people who are beginning this podcast and being like, oh, my God, are we just going to talk about Zion for another 25 minutes? The answer is kind of yes, because we're also at a point in the NBA season where I'm just like, I don't know, man. Like this, this is pretty brutal. The Warriors are going to win again. Everybody's unhappy and waiting for free agency. And I just no, have he, never he, been lower here, on where the league is. Here's all you need to know: like every single team in the Eastern Conference playoff race, quote unquote, played last night. It was like Orlando, Miami, Charlotte, uh, Brooklyn. They all lost. <laughs> it's like that's all you need <laughs> to know. It's like what an amazing playoff push. Every single one of them, they went 0 for 4. But I did exactly. actually have an ulterior motive in, in bringing up the Zion stuff, Andrew. I won't lie. I wanted to get the gushing out of the way so that I could nitpick a little bit. And I okay, think that people will understand by the genuine joy and happiness in our voice how excited we are about Zion, the prospect, uh, the you know league-altering personality who's coming through, the sneaker king. I mean, all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. So Well, and let me add one thing there. The, the coolest part about Zion is seeing him interact with his teammates and how often he's going over to them and kind of keeping them engaged and getting them going. And that was true before games. It was true during games. It was true even after R.J. Barrett missed the front end of the one and one Like, Zion is right there kind of being that guy and being a killer teammate at all times. And I think that those moments are part of the intangible conversation and part of what has caught everybody off guard this year is that, like, in addition to this absurd athleticism, He's also just a really smart player and a great teammate. And I think that's why a lot of people who would who might typically have skepticism are pretty in on Zion. And with that out of the way, tell me the questions you have. You know, let's pick some nits here. Well, I'm glad you said that because uh, there's a couple of times when he'll celebrate plays and you know he's kind of mugging for the cameras a little bit in a very LeBron-esque way. And uh-huh. usually players who do that would have scouts down their throats saying, oh, he's egotistical, he's doing it for himself, he's a me-first player and all that. But because of all those little things that you just mentioned, I think he's been completely inoculated from that. And I haven't really heard any questions about his makeup his you know his character his teammates any of that and for a player who's going to be dissected you know to such a degree as he would as the you know consensus number one overall pick that's really impressive uh here was my concern though and it, it came down to the very end of the michigan state game 
Uh, RJ Barrett was getting absolutely crushed by everyone for sort of hijacking the offense, not coming through in the clutch. And you'll remember a week or two ago, I told you, if Duke goes out early, RJ is going to be the scapegoat and people are going to have so much fun hating on him. And it played out yeah. even worse than I expected. But I think some of that towards RJ was unfair on sort of the key deciding possession offensively for Duke in that game. The ball went to Zion on the left wing. He had a one-on-one matchup. He didn't drive to the hoop. He didn't take his guy one-on-one. He thought about shooting. He didn't trust his jumper. He passed the ball to RJ in a situation where RJ had to make something happen off the dribble. He had to be the one to take the shot in that moment. That's not Mm -hmm. RJ's fault. That's Zion's fault. And I think that if if people are saying, okay, uh, what position does he play? Those kinds of questions I think are not as relevant as his critics would want to make them because of positionless basketball and, you know, he can kind of play every spot. But his handle needs work. His one-on-one game uh, against bigger, stronger, longer players uh, is going to look not as good as it does uh, when he's dunking over smaller college players in the post. Uh, his face-up game, he's not that what-a-wood creator threat. He, he's not there. And then his three-point shot, which has definitely improved, clearly it's not improved to the point where he trusts it with the whole season on right. the line. And so I think if you're saying, hey, there's no such thing as a perfect prospect and you know Zion's the best guy we've seen since Anthony Davis, whatever kind of hype you want to put on him, those are real concerns. you know, And those are things that are going to matter at the NBA when if you're the best player, you almost always get the ball in your hands late in games. And I was also For surprised sure. like when their season's on the line, they didn't dump it into him in the post, right? So they don't trust his post game enough to have him just, you know, you get down there on the block, go to work, get us a basket or get fouled. And so I thought actually his decision to pass was not the worst case scenario. You know, the worst case would have been driving and getting a charge or driving into traffic, throwing the ball away. Like there are other higher risk things that he could have done in that scenario. Uh, but uh-huh. it, it also wasn't that like best player in the world or like future best player in the world takeover moment that you want to see from a guy in that situation. And he looked a little bit lost, frankly. And I'm not here to say he got exposed. I'm not here to say, oh, he's got these gigantic flaws. Uh, he's a choker. Yeah. I'm not saying any of those things. But if you watch the way that end game worked, the ball floated to the guy who was most comfortable creating off the dribble. That was RJ. He stepped up and tried to do what his team needed. And so from that standpoint, I say less hate for RJ, a little bit more uh, attention on Zion's flaws. That's the fair, the fairest way to assess what happened to Duke and why they're out early. Yeah, I think that's a, a smart point to make and one that hasn't been made enough um, because Zion's flaws were part of the story in that those final minutes where Duke didn't really have be- a better option than R.J. Barrett. And I don't know if that's entirely on him. I mean, part of it's just the way he plays. I think if you look at any teams at the end of games, you're almost never seeing them throw the ball into the post because it's harder to execute those plays at the end of games. And with Duke specifically, the game plan would have been to double-team Zion, potentially triple-team him. I mean, he was facing triple-teams against Virginia Tech at certain points. And like, and Zion is great at passing in those situations and staying poised and finding open shooters. Duke's problem is that they didn't really have shooters for him to pass to. And so that made it a little bit more complicated too. But in general, I'm really glad you made that point because I've seen a lot of people coming out killing RJ and killing Coach K. And let me tell you, I feel awful defending Coach K here. And God, I wish he hadn't won the 2015 title because we would have been able to really, like, pillorying Coach K 
yesterday, we're recording this on Tuesday, the Monday after the loss would have been a hundred times better if Coach K hadn't won the title with Justice Winslow and Okafor. Um, that should have been Kentucky's title. I'm still pissed off about it. But Coach K, people were like, well, you did a bad job building a team around Zion. Well, like, shit, it's not free agency. You're recruiting guys, and sometimes they can't shoot. Cam Reddish was supposed to be a shooter, and he couldn't shoot. Yeah, I mean, and it, it kind of is free agency for them. The guys he recruited were awesome. <laughs> they, didn't, they, they just weren't really shooters. That was, I mean, yeah. Cam Reddish and RJ were supposed to be, like, you know, the best wing prospects out there, right? So those guys should be they able to shoot. They were supposed to be better from the perimeter than they actually were at Duke. And I don't necessarily think you can pin that on Coach K as much as I would like to. And the same with RJ at the end of that game. It's like, all right, look, I we said a couple weeks ago, I don't really love his game. It is funny how... How, like, I love when open floor just gets things, like, dead right. And, like, it only happens once in a blue moon. But we did <laughs> hey, predict speak the... for yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, we predicted the RJ timeline down to a T. Um, hey, but b- even By that, the way, he handled that really well, too, after that game. I don't know if you saw his did. post-game clips. You were probably there in the locker room. I mean, my God. Like, you know, sometimes we make fun of these kids for being like, you know, polished or protected or like kind of, you know, system products. Oh, yeah, he's had these personal coaches and all this, you know, throughout his life. That makes a real difference in a moment of stress and, and sadness. You know, your teammates are crying. It'd be so easy to break down in that situation, lash out, freak out with all these questions. Oh, what's wrong with your shot selection? What happened late? All that kind of stuff. He handled that stuff like an absolute pro. Yeah, well, and he also pulled himself together because I saw him at the press conference initially before he went back to the locker room and continued answering questions. And at the press conference, that was one where I made a internal decision to not spend the next 72 hours arguing about R.J. Barrett's ceiling. Because <laughs> Good for you. you could see, he was just like, he was heartbroken. He could barely speak, and he was very much 18 years old. And um, that's one where it is... It changes as you get older where I'm just like, look, like that sucks. Um, Whereas when I was 23 or 24 years old, I would have been like, that was amazing. RJ, you choked exactly the way I predicted you would. And (laughs) now, you know, I'm less of a Carolina fan in those moments than I may have uh, been earlier in life. As far as the, the Zion thing, though. It's a great point. And um, and I enjoyed that ending at least insofar as it, it should reframe the way we think about Zion and what he's going to be able to do. I think his ability to operate comfortably on the perimeter is a real thing. And as the roll guy in a pick and roll, he can handle the ball, he can pass, he can get to the rim and finish. And he's going to be really, really dangerous going downhill in like four on three situations. Um the same way Draymond Green does in Golden State, but he's like Zion's a much better offensive player around the rim than Draymond is, so he's going to be that much more dangerous. And so all of that I think is real, and it's a way to use him in the half court. But he's not the guy, he's not the next LeBron, and I hope that everyone understands that. I imagine everyone who listens to our podcast probably does understand that, but like as famous as he is and as real as this phenomenon has been, I guess, let me put it this way. I think that Zion is the next LeBron in as much as he has met some of the craziest expectations we've seen in 20 years. And in fact, he's actually exceeded those expectations. And Zion is the first person to 
do that since LeBron. And so in that respect, the, the LeBron comparisons are kind of unavoidable because we just haven't seen a phenomenon like this in 20 years. The basketball story is going to be different, though, and he's not going to be the like next LeBron, next Jordan guy who's creating and carrying teams in these crucial moments. And in that, in those moments, he's going to be more of a big man, in the same way that Joel Embiid is is that way. You know, yeah. He, let, let me hop you're on that point. Embiid re- carrying teams, right? Let me hop on that point real quick, just to underline it. With Jordan, he's remembered for the shot at Carolina. Last second, clock ticking down. He goes to the jumper. It's wet. He has the confidence. He drains it. They win the title, right? Like, that's Uh that moment. For LeBron, I don't know if you saw the more than a game documentary about his high school career, but there is a key sequence late. They're going for the title. Might have been the championship game or the semifinal game. LeBron finds his teammate in the corner wide open for a three. The guy buries it. They win the title, right? Uh, Yeah. So in those moments, you kind of got a a little sneak peek of what they might look like when the pressure's on, when they're at that next level. What's their thought process going to be? Who are they? Jordan, of course, the killer. He's trying to get his own shot every single time. They finally guilt-tripped him into passing, you know, to Paxson every once in a while. But, I mean, we knew what he wanted to do with the ball. It was exactly what he did to Brian Russell, right? With LeBron... A lot of times he's looking for those corner shooters late in games. You know, he's collapsing defenses and trying to create the best shot for his teammates. He's said as much. He views himself as a playmaker, not a scorer. With Zion, like you just mentioned, it's more complicated. We haven't exactly seen how he's going to react to those situations yet because once he was put in that uh, exact spot against Michigan State, he didn't really have a plan for what he wanted to do. I'm not saying he's going to spend the rest of his NBA career passing out of those spots, but I do think if you're if he lands in your lap and you're the coach, you have to be thinking from day one, exactly how do I want to use this guy late in games? And it's going to be difficult, you know, and in the same way the Clippers had trouble leaning on Blake late in games. It's a, it's a different conversation with big guys and Zion is a big guy. And, and that's it. Like you say, his handle needs to get better. And that's true. His handle is good for a big guy, but if he's going to be out on the perimeter trying to beat guys in that zone, his handle does need to get better. And so that's the same is true with his jumper. I'm glad you mentioned his inability to trust it in, in that moment because like that was the list, litmus test, really. Like He can hit these standstill threes where teams aren't really guarding him and he's catching teams off guard. But like in those big moments when teams are paying attention, Zion's not going to be a shooter, at least in the first year yeah. of his career. And there was another shot with like four or five minutes left in that game. I think he was tired. He he jacked up a step back three. It missed badly. And as he soon as he bad. missed that shot, I was like, I bet you he's not going to take another one here. <laughs> like, I think that was right. it, you know. And that was, you know what? That was probably the right call. Um, I do think if we're talking about his NBA future, I wrote a column uh, on Sports Illustrated that ran... Tuesday. This will drop on a Monday. Nope, this will drop on a Wednesday. Uh, But if anyone wants to go read that, go check it out. I think that this is a point you made a couple weeks ago. Zion in the pace and space era with the new freedom of movement rules is going to be even more unguardable than most people can appreciate right now. And, um, you know, that, so I think he's going to have a really, really high baseline as a rookie and could come in and average 20 points a game, maybe even more than that. And it's going to be really, really successful early on. I think you're raising a good question though. It's like, all right, so if, if we know he's going to be good, like how great can he really be? Can he be the best player in the league? And I don't know if he can, I think 
you and I talked on Sunday. I told you he probably couldn't um, because the limits on the perimeter kind of limit his ultimate, ultimate, ultimate ceiling. But all of that shit is like splitting hairs at a certain point. I mean, is, is he going to be a top five player? Maybe. Top 10? Probably. Like, maybe not the best, but he's going to be really good regardless. Yeah, and you'll remember I was really high on Draymond, you know, a few years ago. Like, I think you consistently told me I had him too high in my top 100. I think there was years I had him in the top 10. Yeah. It, you know, if he's playing Draymond-like on defense and he's significantly better on offense because he's so much more explosive vertically and he can get you can act, uh, function as a number one or a number two scoring option for your team in a way that Draymond never could I mean to me that isn't his ceiling now so by that standard like shouldn't his floor during his peak years probably be around top 10 player if he's giving you that much defensively and so much more than Draymond offensively I think so um, yeah which and- is insane to think about as a guy enters the NBA calling his floor top 10 uh, right but it's not entirely crazy he just needs to stay healthy but if he stays healthy I think he's gonna be very very solid yeah, and this is actually a similar conversation I had with the Nuggets this week where there's I'm trying to say, hey, how many wins is a guy like Jokic worth to you? And just like these other MVP characters, like their front office, they don't want to talk about that because they feel like it puts down the rest of their team, right? But uh-huh. they're basically saying, look, he's worth wins just like Harden, just like Giannis. You look at the number of injuries Denver had, but they also had to spend about two full years with the single-minded purpose of how do we build around Jokic to find the right players to complement his style of play and to cover up his flaws because he's a uh-huh. big guy and it's weirder to bu- to build around a big guy. But I think Denver's shown you're going to have a consistent winner here in Denver for years going forward, given how young their team is and, and given how good Jokic is. I mean, they're not going to be like Spurs level 50 wins every season, but they're going to be in the playoffs. You know, basically you can bank that for the next five years because of Jokic. And I think whoever gets Zion's going to have that same challenge. It's not just how do you use him late in games, but it's also how do you find the right personnel because he's a big guy to build around him in in an unorthodox way. And you mentioned Embiid earlier, the same challenge kind of faced the Sixers and they just bet on talent, right? They're like, let's just get as many good players as possible with uh, Ben Simmons first, but then also Jimmy and now Tobias. And they're just going to hope that it works. I'm not so sure that that formula and that plan and that approach is going to work. And I think that could wind up being a cautionary tale for whoever gets Zion. Yeah, it's funny because I was having this conversation with a friend earlier today. I think we need a higher threshold before people can introduce the phrase surround him with shooters, because I've heard a lot of people use that with RJ Barrett and guys who just like, aren't really good enough to start thinking about building your entire team around them. I mean, there aren't that many shooters in the NBA to begin with, and if it were that easy, everybody would have done it already. Like, the surround them with shooters, that's just how you build a good basketball team. But as far as Zion is concerned, and my surround them with shooters threshold, if, we, if I were remaking how we talk about this stuff, would be, can you win a future MVP? And I think Zion is good enough that he can be in that conversation the same way Jokic is, frankly, um, and Embiid is as well. And yeah, we're going to kind of find out where this goes. Um, one of the points I made in my piece and, and, and that a scout made additionally as I was talking to him is that Draymond is a good comparison. And one of the reasons that Zion has such a high floor is he's going to be able to switch on defense and gonna be he's going to be really good on that end. And, um, and I think 
that's one reason to feel a little bit more comfortable about building around him is like you're not going to have to hide him on the other end which is a great place to start from if you're talking about a superstar like he's going to be a plus on both ends and then the reason I like the Draymond comparison more than anything is that Draymond's intangibles are what make him great and what take him from like a top 50 player to a top 15 player and I think the same will be true of Zion where like He's going to do a lot of little things that set him apart, and and half of it is just going to be playing harder than a lot of people. Um, but that's what makes him special. To tie off this meandering segment here, well, look, uh, I really hope it's about the sneakers, Andrew, because we need to talk about the sneakers. Because I'm sure you saw the piece on ESPN that says, "Look, Nike wants this guy." Adidas has known his family since he was in high school, and they supported his AAU team. Uh, maybe oh, I some, didn't see any of that. Maybe some other weird, you know, uh, New Balance or some of these Chinese companies, Anta, are going to try to get into the mix, and they're predicting like a huge, gigantic payday for Zion. You know, no surprise on the sneakers, right? Um, yeah. How would you? How do you want this to play out? Let's not even try to say how. Not let's not try to guess how it's going to play out. How do you want it to play out? Nike, Adidas, or other? Nike, come on, Nike. I, I was a big Brandon Ingram guy, and when he signed with Adidas, I became about fifty to seventy-five percent less confident in his career <laughs> and ceiling, and so. I do not want to see Zion Williamson go to Adidas. This wait a is not minute, wait some a minute. Off-brand superstar shit. So I'm out here making these very elaborate Noah's Ark analogies about how he's a two-by-two two player, not enough free throws, not enough three-pointers. I'm doing everything I can do to get through to you on Brandon Ingram's true value, and all I needed to say was he wears Adidas. <laughs> exactly, yes. I Deep down, as soon as he signed with Adidas, I was like, oh boy, all right, so he's not a future mega star this is the ceiling is going to be like maybe a couple all-star games so if he signs with nike do you give him the signature right out of the gate like is he debuting with the zion one no first of all no second of all i though the tell with nike it seems like they're already starting to recruit him through the national team program and they want him to be in japan no i think the this summer it's it's China, and then next summer it's the Olympics in Japan. Um, but the uh, the fact that they're already recruiting him to be part of the national team tells me that Nike is putting on the full court press here. And um, I don't know if his signature right out of the gate. Look, Giannis doesn't even have his own signature shoe yet. I know but, that's a that's uh, a catastrophe. That's I mean that's just a crime against humanity. We don't have the freaks yet. <laughs> hey, uh, would you buy a Zion sneaker though? Like just theoretically, like if they came out with one, the air Zion one, I don't know, maybe it's his second year in the league and he's got a sneaker. Would you buy it? Just out of allegiance or something? I don't really buy basketball shoes anymore. No, well, obviously they're going to be making it so it's cool enough to not, you don't have to like go up and down and you're not going to put 48 minutes in, in your air Zion ones. I mean, this is <laughs> going to be for going to, you know, new seasons, or whatever grocery store you do, you know, are you going to be like, the, is it going to be cool enough where you feel like you have to go buy the air Zion one? That's my point. No. Um, and, and really like the next basketball shoe that I buy will be the Giannis shoes. And then beyond that, I pretty much only buy retros that were cool when I still really cared about shoes and was passionate about shoes. Like I would buy a pair of the Deion Sanders turf shoes. I would buy the air pennies. Uh, but as far as like whatever half-assed design they make for Zion or like the new Kyrie's are, are, are kind of ugly. The Kyrie two or three, like a couple versions ago, the Kyrie shoes were great, but those were the last like new Nike shoes that I really liked. 
Well, that doesn't sound great for Nike. I mean, if you're not even, <laughs> if you're already writing off the Air Zion one well, two years I'm before it's even happened. Well, I'm not the audience anymore. Look, we've talked about how we're just old and washed up now. It is what it is. Uh, the, the college games just confirmed it, you know. Um, I do have one more question here, though. Gus says, who will be the better NBA player, Ben Simmons or Zion Williamson? What do you think? I think Zion, uh, because of kind of what we said earlier, I think his defensive ceiling is higher. Um, and I think the complete lack of jumper and no progress with the jumper from Simmons is something that I always sort of gave him the benefit of the doubt on. I thought that he would have smart enough people around him to that there would be just kind of gradual process, uh, progress, much like there has been with Giannis here, getting more comfortable shooting and catch and shoot, then working in some off the dribble, then, you know, starting at 18 feet, then going to 20 feet and so forth. And Instead, he just seems like he's punting on the most important skill uh, for a ball handler. So I don't, I don't know. I think that that would hold him back. I don't see any glaring hole in Zion's game that's as big as the shooting hole in Simmons's game. And I think he's got a higher ceiling defensively by a lot. All right, um, good answer. I think it's borderline insane that we're talking about Zion in these terms. And I'm not here to say that any of it is wrong, but we just should all appreciate how surreal it is that like Ben Simmons is borderline all NBA this season and looks like a lock to be in the top 15 or 20 players for the next 10 years. And both of us are in agreement that I think Zion is just going to have a better career. Like that's insane. Uh, but that's where we are. And Ben, we've buried the lead. We're now 40 minutes into the podcast and there is breaking news to get to. But before we get there, let me tell you about our sponsors today. This is, this is going to take a lot of restraint, actually. Today's podcast is brought to us by LinkedIn. Ben, when it's time to make a hire for your small business, Ben or anyone, any listeners out there, naturally, you want to find the best person for the job. Odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role best. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers, so LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Ben, tell me a little bit more about LinkedIn. Your LinkedIn job matches are based on skills and background, sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way, you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash floor and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash floor. Terms and conditions apply as always. And don't forget, Andrew, I'm on LinkedIn now, you know? Yeah, you know, everyone's on LinkedIn. Go add Ben to your professional network. And if you're looking to hire, Go hit up linkedin.com slash floor and get $50 off your first job posting. Okay, I'm going to so, handle this breaking news for you because I could tell you're at a loss for words. All right, well, we've got I, I here, am. we've got some tweets coming through uh, TweetDeck as we speak. It says, quote, uh, Sh uh, Sham Sharania, 
the Washington Wizards have made Tommy Shepard the interim GM with a search now underway for a full-time GM because they have fired longtime GM Ernie Grunfeld, a also a longtime Andrew Sharp foil and target of abuse, I would say. Uh <laughs> He's probably responsible for torturing your heart maybe more than anyone else in the NBA that I can think of at this point. Um, So I'm trying to buy some time so you can compose yourself. But what's your (laughs) what's your initial takeaway? Are you celebrating like you wanted to celebrate at that Duke game? Are you letting loose? Are you uh, popping a cold one? What are you doing here? Well, I mean, I'll take you through a couple text messages that I'm getting right now. First, I got, oh my God, in all caps. And then second, I got, there is a God. And then all caps, Ernie is out. And then uh, a text from my wife who is trying to pick out some new couches. We're trying to change up the living room. And then um, another text. (laughs) Thanks, Alice. You're ruining it. (laughs) And another text being like, finally, we did it. So that's where everyone else's head's at right now. Um, And I don't know, man. I, I, I think you're overstating my contempt for Ernie. No, Uh, don't try to take the high road here. Come on, Andrew. I wanted to look Ernie had, here, time out. I'm going to read Ted Leonsis' statement, and you're going to come back, and you're going to keep it real. I don't want to hear any okay. of this nonsense about, oh, yeah, it's it's good for the franchise. Come on, really dig in. Ted Leonsis, owner of the Wizards, says, we did not meet our stated goals of qualifying for the playoffs this season, and despite playing with injuries uh, to several key players, we have a culture of accountability and a responsibility of managing two positive outcomes. I wish to thank Ernie for his service to the Washington Wizards. He and his family have been great leaders in our community and have worked tirelessly to make us a top NBA franchise. So everything besides that last part sounded really true. Um, I'm not sure what definition he's using for top NBA franchise. I mean, top 25? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Technically still in the NBA. So yeah, Um, here's the thing. I enjoy Ernie personally. I've enjoyed talking to him over the years. I think his job is a little bit harder than people sometimes appreciate because sometimes he has to manage Ted and what Ted wants to do. And that's part of the riddle, you know, with any general manager. Um, I look and, and nobody wants to go there. I mean, let's be real. Like nobody's really wanted to go to Washington. He didn't have a premier platform. Let's put it that way. Right. And now if we're talking about culture of accountability, whatever Ted said there. I don't know. I would have held Ernie accountable a couple years ago when they struck out entirely on Kevin Durant and then had to turn around and try to save face by throwing $70 million at Jan Mahenmi. Like, are you fucking kidding me? That was the real plan and that's everybody was okay with that? Just, I mean, come I, on, Andrew. He went from one MVP candidate to another. I mean, what did you Oh, want? my God. It was just awful and, like, phenomenally embarrassing. That was a three-year kind of process recruiting Kevin Durant and then to not even get a meeting and they didn't and that was all part of that was keeping Randy Whitman in place and you if you really want to look at the original sin of the Wizards it was not firing Whitman when it was clear that he was not a good coach and they overachieved in the playoffs and then they just kind of ran it back and we're like yeah well he's a cheap coach and we're not going to go out and hire Steve Kerr and then couple years later you turn around and you're paying 35 million dollars to scott brooks because you think he can recruit kevin durant it's just like so there have been a lot of bad ideas piled on the top of other bad ideas 
And if Ernie had a skill, it was finding half-assed solutions, band-aids that could allow the wizards to maintain this kind of veneer of respectability and relevance that was never something that real basketball people took seriously. And I think a lot of that was laid bare in the summer of 2016, and a lot of it has been true in the years since. So... Am I love I how you're just painting him. You're painting him like a mash unit's ER, just running around like trying to, you know, yeah. tie off bleeding legs and like <laughs> do whatever well, he could do to keep <laughs> keep the patients alive. Is sort of what you've described. Well, yes, exactly. He would fuck up the surgery, but then also find a way to keep the patient alive. So that was Ernie, and um, <laughs> it is what it is. Look, the day John Wall got drafted, I wrote about why the Wizards should probably move on from Ernie Grunfeld and get to a more forward-thinking administration. It didn't happen. We're now, I don't know how many years down the line, and um, I'm happy to be off this particular treadmill of mediocrity. I'm not going to get too high. I still really care about the team. I think that things can go in a good direction. If you want a, a window into where my head is at as a Wizards fan, I was sending text messages uh, during the Wizards-Nuggets games, and I was sincerely pretty excited about Troy Brown and where he's going. So that's like the one bright spot that the Wizards have had over the last couple months. And now this is another one. We'll see where it leads. I don't know who, (laughs) here's another text message. It feels like we just won the NBA lottery. So there you go. uh, That's how desperate the Wizards were. See uh, see how much better it is when you just keep it real. I'm glad you composed yourself and got away from that generic praise you were trying to do because that came out as heaters really appreciate all that (sighs) truth telling. It reminds me a little bit here of the auto trade because it was one of those things where it's oh like you back yourself God. into the corner. Uh, you, you, you need to find a way out. You can't convince yourself of your own lie because you're staring at your goals as Leon says mentioned in his statement and you're mm-hmm. basically just 0 for 10, right? Like whatever the top 10 things the Wizards wanted to do this year, they went 0 for 10, <laughs> you know? And so it's they like really at did. some point if you're sitting around that boardroom meeting and you're like, so like how do we spin this? And somebody's like, well, I heard Andrew say one nice thing about Troy Brown and that's what your takeaway is. <laughs> or maybe Bradley Beal will sneak onto the All-NBA third team and we have to pay him a 40% premium. Like if those are the best case scenarios from your season, that's a big time problem. And I do think that, there was uh, an, a moment where two moments really this season where like the denial just became too much and they had to admit hard, fast facts. One was the uh, auto trade. It was like, look, the salary cap is so screwed up. We just can't have him. Sorry. Goodbye. Yep. The second one is here where it's like, look, Ernie's a nice guy. He's good in the community. If you want to win 40% of your games, he could probably help you do that. But If you want to actually go anywhere and have some real pride as an organization, it's probably time to find a new voice to lead that rebuilding effort. And I'm glad they did it, and we'll see who they hire. You know, they need a new energy there. Uh, I think there's no question about that. I think bad Mm -hmm. habits can kind of settle in. And so many of the times that I've watched the Wizards here over the last six or seven years in person, I've just seen teams that were very underwhelming from a chemistry and a effort standpoint. And when that sort of... The baseline, when that's the expectation, I think that that can be sign of a, a culture that needs a serious shift. I think this was the right move, and I'm actually, you know, quietly, <laughs> I'm quietly ecstatic for you because you needed yeah. this. 
Well, the least controversial take, this was very clearly the right move and would have been the right move five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, And I think your point on the auto trade is a really good one. And I need to clarify something because I have grumbled loudly on this podcast about that goddamn trade over the last couple months. Whenever it's brought up, it makes me very upset. And it's not just because I love Otto Porter, the basketball player. I do think he's good. I've always believed in him, and I think he can really help a good team. But what bugs me about that trade is the utter lack of foresight, where you could have looked at the Wizards in August or in September and said, you know what, even in the best-case scenario, this team is probably not going to go any further than the second round. And that's the absolute best-case scenario that Washington would have had. Um, And in that case, then the Wizards were going to become very, very expensive, and they were going to have to make some difficult choices, and they were probably going to have to end up parting ways with Otto. So in that case, why not trade him a year ago when you could have actually gotten something useful in return, even gotten a couple extra picks? Like, I don't know. I don't know what the market would have been. It would have been better than the stray second round pick plus cap relief that they got from Chicago. And, um, and that is partially on Ernie, but I think a lot of it is also that Grunfeld entered every season knowing that he was basically managing for his job and he's been kind of strung along for the last six or seven or eight years without much job security and so he was incentivized to think super short term and that's partly on the ownership group no they all had the collective denial i mean they were all kind of in on it right it's like it's all better if we pretend that something brighter could happen because otherwise we have to admit that we're really stuck and it's probably going to cost us all of our jobs hey i have a and i'm cool with the auto trade if you want to be super aggressive halfway through his rookie deal or or even like right right after he signs that extension and just trade him then but then to kind of like sit on your hands and just wait until it gets bad enough so that you have no better alternative but to move him for nothing, like that's a failure of the entire organization. And, you know, you can go back to the offer sheet he signed. I am not going to take people through the granular mistakes that the Wizards have made no, you're trying, though. for the last <laughs> seven years, but I could. And so, yes, as we well, continue to talk, I'm getting happier and happier that good. a new era is upon us. Good, because I'm going to bring your mood to a, a real climax here. Have we seen John Wall in a Wizards uniform for the last time? Mm, no, and because, honestly, that's... <laughs> hold on, though, because we're starting to see the reports already that if they just let him sit out all of next year, they can collect a lot of money back on the insurance, right? So if you wipe off all of next year and you have a new GM and his first goal, I would assume if it's a lot of these forward thinking GMs would be to clear John Wall out as quickly as possible. That would be much more realistic in the summer of 2020 than at any point before that. And you obviously need to turn a new leaf. You have no loyalty from that front office to a John Wall. I mean, isn't it possible that he's starting that 2020-21 season somewhere else? Um, it's certainly possible. I will say that that is why there is something of a restrictor plate on my happiness in this moment. And over the last 15 minutes, it's like, I think either way, John Wall is going to be very difficult to move. <laughs> what you're saying Wizards. is Ernie's Ernie's gone, but the legacy of Ernie lives on. <laughs> and I don't even put that entirely on Ernie. I think that was the entire league not totally appreciating 
how damaging super con- super max contracts could be and it was just their their hand was forced with John Wall. He was coming off like a, a magical playoff run where he won over the city and the Wizards didn't have enough backbone to point out that he still lost the goddamn series. Um so yeah, I I don't think they're going to actually move John Wall. I don't think that we're going to see him at all next season in part because of the insurance money factor. Uh but I, if they did, and if you took John Wall off this team at a lottery pick this spring, there's a lot to work with. I do think that the Wall injury, and it's unfortunate for him as well as the team, as well as fans, like it sucks for everybody. So I don't mean to kind of divorce him from some of this too, because it's it just is it's a bad deal for everybody, but it does kind of like cloud the future and, and loom there um, no matter what happens and what direction they go with this GM. So I've got another question for you. I'll I'll give you Sam Hinkie or the field. Who do you want? Oh, good old Sam. Uh, I think I would enjoy Hinkie strictly for the irony as the Sixers kind of top out at this like 50-win team that it overpays Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, and their best-case scenario is like a third seed. So they basically become the wizards of the of a couple years ago, and then I change places with Spike and Mike and and start cheering for Sam Hankey's team. Uh, it's purely on those terms. Um, I would love Hankey in, in Washington, but uh, I haven't really gotten far enough to start thinking about like real GM candidates. I think you could do a lot worse than Sam Hankey. I think you should take Sam and run if you get that if you get that <laughs> That's opportunity. That's a good point. <laughs> the lesser of two evils, wherever, uh, whatever other directions Washington is thinking of going. So, uh, you know, yes. Ryan McDonough is still available. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah. See, this is why. I, look, and now you, know you want Hankey. <laughs> now you want Hankey, don't you? You know what's funny about Ernie Grunfeld, and this is why I'm a little conflicted. I'm sure he's going to get crushed across the internet today and for the rest of the week probably. Um, he was still a step up from what the Wizards had been dealing with before him. And, you know, I, Wes Unselt <laughs> was an absolute nightmare as a GM. And there's stuff that the Wizards did when I was a child that I wasn't old enough to fully appreciate like I, I paid attention to the NBA when I was that age but I wasn't like a diehard Wizards fan when they traded Rasheed Wallace they traded Chris Webber for Mitch Richmond and Otis Thorpe and like they did shit that would give me an aneurysm if a, if a basketball team did it today and they did it regularly like every five years they would make a move like that and so Ernie was a step up from that, but certainly there's uh, a long way to go. Well, that sounds like a good motto for next year's uh, media guy, <laughs> 2019-20 yeah. Wizards. A long way to go. Long way to go. All right. So, um, yeah, breaking news kind of threw me off there. Let's finish things off with a couple more questions. The first Read is this on- one from uh, Joseph, please. Uh, from Joseph. Okay. Joseph says, all NBA must be an annual meritocracy. And if you agree with this premise, then how can load management, no defense, LeBron James make even third team all NBA? I'm glad he asked this. Obviously, this is in the wake of the Lakers shutting LeBron down after 55 games. 
as a bunch of people pointed out to me, the Lakers were 28 and 27 with LeBron on the court. They just conveniently waited until they got above 500 with a couple of recent wins before shutting him down. To me, that sure seems a lot like an all NBA case spin uh, (laughs) from my, my seat. Look, I don't have the vote. That might push me the other direction for the record, but. So here's the thing. I don't have a vote. As I've said before, if I was voting this year, I would leave LeBron off. Uh, When Uh you look at the number of games that he's missed, um, when you've looked at the number of games the Lakers have lost, if you compare that to the last, you know, 20 years or so of all NBA selection, there's really no other comparison. The closest you can get is DeMarcus Cousins when he was with the Kings Uh, a couple years. He was, you know, playing like around 60 games they were winning in the 30s and he was able to make it but that's a situation where there just wasn't a lot of good centers those years so he's almost making it by default I think you know like uh, Joseph mentioned it should be an annual meritocracy and if I voted I would put LaMarcus over LeBron I would put Kawhi over LeBron I would put Blake Griffin over LeBron LeBron would be the seventh forward uh obviously guys like Giannis Katie and and Paul George would be in too um I understand you can still argue for him as the best player in the league, but it's very similar to the argument I used for Steph last year. It's like if you're missing that much time and there's other really good candidates for that one year, you shouldn't just get in based off your reputation or based on your standing among the NBA's best. Uh, Uh So if I could vote, I would vote against LeBron. Okay, that's good. Good to hear. Um, I was anticipating an argument on this one. I don't think I'm going to vote for LeBron um, in part because – the president, the, the not the president, the precedent uh, is a tough one. I mean, you, like, because I, I saw you listed the guys who had been in that same 50, 55 game range to make right. all NBA. So it's like Yao Ming, Dwayne Wade it, in 2007, Chris right. Weber. Like, there's some really good players. But again, all their teams were playoff teams, you know, 46 exactly. plus win teams. They're not the Lakers who are, you know, like they had two five, like LeBron said, we're going to activate. And then they had two five game losing streaks in March, like nice activation. Well, and not only that, and the the ultimate tiebreaker for me, because it's going to be a really close call with him and LaMarcus Aldridge or whoever else you want to put on that third team. But for me, LeBron not only is only going to play 55 games, but he's not going to make the playoffs and the team was a mess and he was a big reason they were a mess. And, you know, I could give him the benefit of the doubt as far as who he was as a player when he was on the court. But if you want to talk about how the rest of the team fell apart around him, like he was a big reason that happened. And so ultimately that's where I think at some point that has to matter. And, And Joseph is right. Like it is a meritocracy and LeBron didn't play defense this year, ruined the locker room, and missed 30 games. So I don't feel horrible about leaving him off. It should maybe feel a little bit more blasphemous. But, like, honestly, Le- LeBron kind of, like, he cost himself the better of the doubt in, in a number of respects this year. No question. Well said. All right. Thanks for humoring me there. I was surprised to hear that you're anti-LeBron, but I think that that should gain some momentum here over the next couple of weeks when you're really looking at these guys, because, you know, even the load management king, Kawhi, is going to play more games, more minutes, and his team's going to win like 20 more games than LeBron. So that one's not even close. And then, you know, you look at LaMarcus, it's not like he has bad stats, you know, or Blake Griffin. Blake Griffin's got great stats. 
So you can make a case for those guys that's more than just the case against LeBron, you know? Yeah. No, Blake's been phenomenal, man. Um, and, and I'm not anti-LeBron in the aggregate, but this season, it's hard not to be. And so I think people should probably be honest and uh, vote your conscience, whoever you are. It's all good. Um, anyways, moving on, the we should revisit Devin Booker for a second. Gus says, I'm an avid Reddit user and a big Golliver supporter. I saw some Golliver attention today. Care to double down against the comments in this thread? And in that thread, we were getting roasted. Most of it was directed at you. I will say that independently, I was ratioed by Suns fans like for 72 hours straight this weekend, even though I, w- I wrote a column that was like largely complimentary of Devin Booker, but I was deep into like, this ain't it chief Twitter and had people sending me gifs and shit all weekend. So we seem to have uncovered a pocket of militant Suns fans somehow. So what do you think? How do you feel about it all? No, I get it. I mean, when your team's terrible, it's been terrible. You've got one shining star, you're going to defend him to the death. So I understand the kind of the context behind their, you know, diehard support. And, you know, I appreciate it on some level. My big uh-huh. takeaway from the whole thing, though, was just that you, know, you mentioned being ratioed. Like, I have my uh, DMs open, right? But I guess at some point, I put like a quality control filter on my phone. So. Yeah. For whatever reason, Twitter's got this little bug where it will tell me how many DMs I'm getting, but then it won't show me the ones that don't pass the quality control filter. So all weekend, I was getting like 20, 30, 40 DMs, which is a very unusual number all at the same time, right? But none uh-huh. of them were coming through. So I think the the meanest and strongest thing I can say about this pocket of Suns fans is they can't communicate well enough to get through Twitter's quality control filters. So I finally figured that out and was going through them. You know, you get these death threats and stuff. It's like, come on, guys, like be better. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I stand by everything I said. I assume that you stand by everything that you said. Uh, well, you know, the short so version is the he's a phenomenal scorer. They need to win more. And if you don't change the culture and if it doesn't start with your best player, you're going to continue to be who that team is. And they've got some talent there. Like, that's the other thing, too, is, oh, he's got no help. You don't have to tell us how bad the Suns have been. We've been railing on them for years. But when you're constantly cycling through these lottery picks, guys who are not living up to their expectations, you have to make do with what you've got around you. There's a lot of guys in the NBA who don't have any help. And, like, look no further than that Wizards-Suns game last week. Like, Washington wins that game. You look at the roster around Bradley Beal, that's not that much better than the Suns roster. They're terrible too. So, uh, And yet we still see other teams pull themselves out of the complete laughingstock territory that Phoenix has been, you know, under 20 wins and barely competitive and all that. So, um, you know, it reflects on everybody in that organization. You can blame the culture for kind of changing Booker or like, you know, getting to him too. And you can say, okay, he's not solely responsible for flipping that thing upside down, but they're all part of it. Nobody is exempt. They've been so bad for so long, and he's been there now for four years. He is part of it too. Yeah, and that's a very fair point to make. Um, I think you were having a little bit more fun with the take at the top of last week's podcast. Look, it drives me nuts. Pulled out of context. But look, if you go, come on, man. If you're down thirty and you go back into the game, that's just you know. Yeah, that's always going to upset me. It's not personal to him or to anyone else. I mean, most teams don't do that, and most coaches don't do that. And I think that they're just assuming that nobody's watching, so that okay, 
you know, now we can get the headline for the amazing scoring output, which was amazing. We're never disputing that. Like the guy is a great scorer, but you know, a lot of guys could chase points in blowout games the way that the Suns have at times over these last couple of years, and they don't. And there's a reason for it. It's sportsmanship. Yeah. Um, and that's all very, very fair and and pretty reasonable. Um, and, you know, as good as Devin Booker is, it's totally reasonable to ask why the Suns haven't won more than 20 to 25 games with him playing this way. And if I took away anything from our weekend of getting ratioed, um, and granted, you took the worst of it. I took like stray this ain't it chiefs from people in phoenix but like you took a steady stream of abuse um and people are just so divorced from reality that it convinced me to take all of social media less seriously uh which is i think a healthy thing i mean we went through this with luca too where like people just get really mad and really personal and i don't mean to make this some kind of postmodern commentary on like the media landscape but because that's not what this podcast is about but there are times when you have to step back and be like whoa like this shit is crazy i was getting called fake news and being accused of being part of like the biased media and all this stuff and it's like i don't have a bias against devin booker i don't care about devin booker we're only talking about devin booker because it's the end of march and there's literally nothing else going on so like everyone else just chill so anyways that was our weekend with Suns fans. It was fun, uh, and I'm ready for the playoffs. That's the type of thing that that reminds me that, like, all right, let's move on to the playoffs and, and yeah. real and just drama. To, yeah, and the thing is, look, when you're following one team, you're really invested in one player. I understand the passion that comes from that. I saw it firsthand in Portland. Like, you're going to get defensive. You're going to say, hey, we know these guys better than anyone else does. But the the idea of the national perspective kind of weighing in here is to say, look, we don't just know the Suns. We can compare the you know, Devin Booker situation to other stars who have been in that situation. We can compare the culture that we've seen from Phoenix and other rebuilding programs that have existed over these last couple of years that have made some progress in areas that Phoenix just hasn't been able to. And we can say, hey, look, here's an example of a positive culture that's built around a young guard that's turned into a playoff team. And here's what we're not seeing in Phoenix. You should be open to those kinds of insights if you're a Suns fan, rather than just digging in and putting your, you know, your angry hat on and screaming and yelling because you're going to still be screaming and yelling two years from now, just like you were screaming and yelling at us two years ago when we were telling you the truth about Ryan McDonough. And you've probably come around on that one too. So open mind, I think open communication, but look, I think unfortunately some of these people, it's just not a, a two-way street. You know, the, the inputs aren't yeah. coming in. Well, and I hate listening to media people whine about Twitter. And so I don't want to become those people, but there are times where you're just like, this is crazy. Like, why are people so upset that I said Devin Booker is Kyrie Irving and not James Harden? Kyrie Irving is still a great player. It's not a big deal. But um, yeah, and anyways, he's not as good as Kyrie, by the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. He said de- defensively, he will probably never be as solid as Kyrie has been in the playoffs. Um, so anyways, it is what it is. But uh, a couple more questions at the end here. Alexander says, is it possible that the ending to Warriors Timberwolves will be used by some to oppose sports gambling? Considering that the refs have been compromised before, this kind of ending is what seems to be will or this kind of ending seems to be what will cause controversy once gambling becomes legalized. Ben, uh, let me tell you one thing. 
covering the college games is such a different experience. And I watched the end of Warriors Timberwolves at halftime of, I think it was the Duke game. It may have been the earlier game and was scolded by fellow college sports reporters, um, some graybeards in there who did not give a shit about what was happening in the Timberwolves game and wanted me to turn the sound off. So with, with that said, I loved watching the refs get revenge on the Warriors. I, th- I thought I understood where Steph was coming when he singled out that ref in the heat of the moment, but I loved the refs going right back at him. And I don't think... That type of thing doesn't compromise the integrity of the game. I think that there should be kind of an unwritten code that if you show up the rest that way, like they reserve the right to screw you right back. I mean, it could have been worse. I thought they should have ejected Steph Curry for his behavior. Uh, Unacceptable, especially for a superstar level player. And I don't say that very often about Steph Curry. I think he's a model citizen, model pro. I understand the heat of the moment. He was really excited about that three-pointer, which was an incredible shot. And Steph had had just a crazy good game. I think he had 11 threes that night. I mean, yep. that's awesome. Uh, there's no need for that. You know, and after the game, he's, you know, going to the standard thing of like, oh, you know, they give a technical to Draymond and they're supposed to be positive communication going two ways. And they and all Draymond said is he wanted to have a conversation with the refs and he got teed up. Steph, it's not positive two-way conversation when you're pointing your finger and laughing at a referee <laughs> as you're running down the court. I thought that should have been a technical foul and frankly, an ejection. Um, and I I understand the being upset about how that foul call is not called. Usually the one on KD, uh, you know, closing things out where he's holding, uh, Carl Anthony Towns around the waist. Hate to break it to you. That was a foul too. (laughs) Like he fouled him. Like it doesn't often get called. A lot of times people are going to look the other way. Uh, but he restricted, uh, Towns's movement, uh, for more than a beat. Well, that was ticky tack and really doesn't ever get called. But yeah, I hear you that technically in the rule book, it would be, it would qualify as a foul. I'm just saying, if you've just pointed at the referee and run around and made a complete mockery of him for the last 30 seconds, and then you do blatantly foul a guy, you can't count on them looking the other way just because it's the last play of the game. That's my point. I think that that's reasonable. Um, Again, I enjoyed the performance from both sides. And, And I think... The Warriors, in the heat of the moment, they were rallying. They were rallying around each other and against that ref. And I understand it. It's a long season, and you need shit like that to kind of keep you guys going. Um, It sounds like I'm talking directly to the Warriors. So, Warriors, if you're listening, I totally get where you were coming from in that overtime. But as far as the, the one line that I would draw is that I thought it was really inappropriate and kind of messed up for them to call that ref out by name. They in all the should have been conference. fine. I think that's a situation where the, the Warriors need to understand the platform they have and the abuse that kind of grandstanding can inflict on someone else. And granted, like the ref is probably fine. He's not, he'll survive. But it just is a really bad look um, for them to be doing that. And it also could lead to resentments that fester and cost the Warriors in the playoffs. Granted, that's a factor that I take less seriously, but like that's part of the story too. It's like it's not good to just alienate the NBA officials and create another another obstacle for yourselves. Look, um, I would I would get it if they were going for seventy three wins, right? Like if they had been playing hard all season long, they're a team on a mission. They're trying to set records, and then like they lose this game just barely, or if it cost them a playoff seed, or if there was like something meaningful on the line. 
Right. But you don't get to jog through 30 games this year and then just decide you're gonna, you're turning it on for one game and now we're screwed and kind of play this persecution complex. It's too much. It was yeah, it was bizarre, um, and they all just kept hammering it. And the one theory well, that I, I, we know why though, they're trying to stand yeah. up for KD, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, well, KD see, was upset. Both the calls were involving him, and they all were like bending over backwards to come to his defense. So you know, they could say they did their part, right? Yes, and that I, uh, you were the one who threw that theory out the night of, as I was kind of shocked that they were sitting there in the press conference and doubling down on all that. Um, but it is a good theory that this is, this is their way to recruit KD and say, look, like we are in the trenches with you. We're going to take these fines and we are going to adopt your bizarre persecution complex as a team. And let's just stay together and hate the world and keep winning titles like that. That's fine. That that's the only way Steph's behavior in that moment makes sense to me. Right. Like let's just hope Steph, uh, step two is not Steph like screaming at reporters out of nowhere. It's just like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You know, it's like, it's yeah. bizarre. Um, but that's where the Warriors have been for several weeks now. All right, last question, Ben. Matthew says, I know a guy from college who I consider to be the worst sports fan imaginable. He supports the Lakers, Alabama football, UNC basketball, the New England Patriots, and the New York Yankees. Is he just the worst general sports fan? Is there any way he could be worse? Keep in mind this guy is from upstate New York. Do you have any thoughts, Ben? I mean, I, I, should we add a soccer team as what Barcelona, Manchester United? I mean, like there's a lot of super teams over there, right? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not up on soccer. What, what team does uh, Mbappe play for? I think he's PSG, right? That's very cool. Great take. Um, I have no... <laughs> come on. Um, no, I think he just sounds like a real wind connoisseur. He's like a wind connoisseur to the nth degree, isn't he? Yeah, uh, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, do you identify with this horrible sports fan? Do you feel kind of a no, kinship with him? Of course not. Look, because I'm not rooting for the teams. I just appreciate greatness. There's a total difference, right? Like, if, <laughs> if like, the back of my car was papered with bumper stickers that was, like, the New England Patriots, like, Tom Brady's the GOAT, and, like, Derek Jeter's jersey retired, and... That's how I imagine your car. No. And Alabama football, you've got one little Alabama helmet for each title. I think they've got like 16 or 17. Look, there's no bumper stickers on my high horse, Andrew. I'm riding around <laughs> just looking for beauty, trying to appreciate teams that can set a standard that other teams can't match. That's all. Oh, boy. Um, okay. And I forget, you're not an Alabama fan anymore. You're a Clemson fan now. Um, but <laughs> not a fan. The- <laughs> I just appreciate greatness. How many times do I have to tell you this? Well, you know, maybe there will be some greatness on the horizon in Washington. Anything is possible now. Whole new era begins today. Uh, and with that, Ben, I need to sign off the podcast here and go catch up on 45 minutes of Grunfeld Schadenfreude that I'm sure is sweeping over Wizards Twitter, which is a place that I occupy that no one else should really worry about investigating. Um, but I picture you post-mating about $50 worth of Buffalo Wild Wings. You're just going to go nuts reading this stuff all day. It's going to be <laughs> it's going to be a personal Super Bowl. Congrats oh, for that. Hey, Andrew. We did it. We did it, Ben. 
Our listeners can email openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Let's hear your Ernie Grunfeld reaction. Let's hear your future uh, scenarios for the Washington Wizards and saving that team. Let's hear your GM candidates to save the Wizards. Let's get your playoff takes, all that stuff. Openfloormail at gmail.com. They can also check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. We're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor. And Andrew, don't forget, I'm on Instagram at ben.goliver. The lantern is coming. I will unleash it within the next 24 hours. So if you're listening to that, check out my Instagram story and you can participate in the next great segment of Andrew's favorite part of the podcast, The Lantern. Andrew, until later this week, I will talk to you. I cannot wait. Talk to you soon, man.